Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Hello, hello. Hello. And we are here to talk about my wife's new favorite movie, Blue Velvet. Yes. Uh, so this is, uh, I remember like literally nothing about this. I watched it probably eight or seven or eight years ago or something. I'm like, oh, this there was a good movie. I enjoyed it. There was a mystery, and then like everything else, just black hole in my not in my brain. <laughs> All the important things that Dana enjoyed so gratefully, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh, but uh, yeah, this is the first Lynch where I've watched it before beforehand, and now that I've watched it again, I can confirm I at least still enjoy the movie. But uh, Chris, I hand it over to you. Okay. Well, Blue Velvet is Lynch's basically carte blanche film. He, after his terrible experience on Dune, he went to the producer, Dino De Laurentiis, and Dino basically said, I'm sorry everything was awful. You get to do your movie, but we have to make it cheap, and I won't I won't do anything. I won't say a word. So this is, this is it. Um, Blue Velvet is about small-town America and the seedy underbelly that exists within every perfect, beautiful suburb. Um, it is about young Jeffrey Beaumont who comes home from school because his dad had some kind of attack. We're not exactly sure if it was a heart attack or an aneurysm or some other kind of crazy thing, but it is visually represented by a kink in the hose during the, one of the, one of the best openings ever. Um, while Jeffrey is on his way home from visiting his father in the hospital, he finds an ear on, in the, in the field by some trash. And so he decides to take the ear to one of his neighbors, who is a cop that he knows uh, relatively well, not super, super well, but, you know, kind of acquaintance type. And this embroils him into this mystery of what is going on with this ear. Um, He begins a relationship with the cop's daughter, Sandy, played by the wonderful, wonderful Laura Dern. And she tells him the couple of things that she's overheard her father saying, which includes that one of the people of interest is a woman named Dorothy Valens who lives in an apartment off of Lincoln Street, which we know we don't we shouldn't be going to Lincoln Street because Grandma said very succinctly when Jeffrey went out for a walk, don't go to Lincoln Street now. And he said, don't worry, Mom, I won't. So we know Lincoln Street is bad juju. Uh, Lynch also, like, c- deliberately stopped on it and tagged some very, uh, don't go that, to that street music. Yes. Um, Angelo Badalamente is the, the, this is his first collaboration as a musician, scorer, composer, there's the word, for a, for a Lynch film, and it begins a long and beautiful and extraordinarily glorious relationship between score and film. Um, but while, while Jeffrey is trying to investigate, he decides to have the incredibly smart idea of breaking into her apartment, and while he's in there, she comes home, and he's trapped. And then we meet Frank Booth, and the nightmare begins, and there's seemingly no way out for poor Jeffrey as he tries to figure out what exactly is going on, but more importantly, how do I not die from Frank Booth? I think that's a good, succinct uh, summary of what the film is about. Um, That's a solid, solid summary. It is very much... I mean, it's 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 a mystery. There's there's the investigation, but yes, at the core, it is cat and mouse between Frank Booth and Jeffrey. So we'll start it off. Uh, let's let's start off with what uh, what we didn't like about the film. What are some negatives about the film? Let's start that off, and I hope Corey can 
shed some light on some of Dana's things. <laughs> I know she she despised the film, and I was hoping that she would be willing to come on and vent about it because I'd love hearing that kind of stuff. But there's there's definitely a, a lot to not like about this film. No, she is unfortunately still sleeping, and also she doesn't like podcasting or talking to other people. Uh, <laughs> um, but she likes you guys, of course. Uh, <laughs> no, she this is just like not her. The entire vibe of the movie is not her type of vibe that she would want out of a movie. Like, if it was just uh, Jeffrey trying to solve this mystery of Dorothy Valens and um, her husband and her son being being missing or kidnapped um, by by Frank Booth's entire organization or whatever, like she would be very much more intrigued into this movie, and that, like, because that is the only part of it I remembered, I was like, oh, this is definitely your type of movie. But um, it also goes into uh, Frank Booth being uh, extremely, extremely uh, weird. Yeah, fucked up. Is uh, I was trying to also describe like the the weird sexual acts that he he puts uh, Dorothy Valens into. Like she is essentially a sex slave while her her husband and and son are kidnapped during this whole thing, uh, and she is not into that. Like the entire character of Frank Booth being the the fucked up nature and non sexually that he is, and he like continually continually says uh, some version of fuck, or some conjugation of fuck, I guess, you, I, guess I should say. Well, I mean, he uses it as, as more than just a verb. It's a very uh, versatile word for him. <laughs> um, but yeah, he she did not like any of those things. Um, and meanwhile, I'm, I was like relatively indifferent toward, uh, toward those things in terms of it being in the movie, but uh, of course... Um, Dennis Hopper's portrayal is as Frank Booth is just incredible. And like reading about uh, the person Dennis Hopper who is in and out of rehab and he's finally out of it, and David Lynch is like, "All right, I'll give you this chance." And him being kind of a leader or uh, a person who everyone else uh, deferred to on set just kind of shows the character turnaround for him. Though from what I was reading, he maybe had a character turn turnaround again later in life, uh, not in terms of drinking, but like just in terms of generally being not a great person. Yeah, no, Dennis Hopper, one of the things was, was um, I. Th- this isn't in the segment, that uh, the excerpt from Lynch's biography that is in the uh, Criterion booklet. I can't remember where I read it from, but when Hopper was trying to get the film, basically he told Lynch, I am Frank Booth. Like, this is who I have been for the past decade and change. Um, I understand this character, and Lynch was kind of like, oh, okay, okay, buddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, that's that's terrifying. Um, but That's that's funny, because Lynch kind of always strikes me as someone who, like, he depicts maybe, like, a Frank Booth on the, on the, uh, on, in film, but, like, in reality, like, he would want just nothing to do with anyone like Frank Booth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Lynch is such a positive human being that he w- he would not want to to be around Frank Booth, but he knows Frank Booth, um, and he he has said that he feels that Frank Booth is someone that that everybody knows, whether they've actually exchanged words with them, know them deeply, maybe even not even know their name. They've seen Frank Booth on the street, looked at that person, and said, "Yep, fuck that dude." Yeah. Um, 
that yeah, Frank I, Booth is like the, the this staple of America this that, that we try to ignore, but he's there, and we've all met him. Yeah, and I think the funny parts of uh, nothing about Frank Booth's character, but about David Lynch, is that like in the book, like in the Criterion book, like he uh, apparently just rode a bicycle around the sex, or not really the sex, because it was just filmed in uh, a town in Delaware. Um, so he would just ride a bicycle around the set with pink tassels on it, just, like, smiling and laughing, all the while Frank Booth is doing whatever the fuck he's doing. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch, he is such a great human being, um, and it makes his movies all the more terrifying because he, it shows that he understands the darkness that exists. And one of the things about this film that is super important is this is the first film that Lynch made where it, it is him exploring that theme, that theme of the light and the dark existing um, and, and, and needing to exist together, that you cannot have one without the other, and sometimes one overshines or overshadows the other. And this is going to be a theme that, like, literally this is his theme throughout all of his films, um, except for Straight Story, I believe, from here on out. This is going to be his modus operandi, peering back and looking at what we see and what lies underneath and the struggle and the balance between the two. And I was talking to uh, our mutual Twitter friend, Dawn, Bunny Cartoon, because um, she can't, jumped in on the, the conversation that I was having with Dana, um, begging her to please give Twin Peaks a shot because she disliked this so much she was ready to just ignore all of David Lynch's work. And I was like, please, please, just watch Twin Peaks. Um, is that Blue Velvet is so relentlessly dark. So one of the things about this film that I believe I kind of disliked the first time I saw it. So when I first saw this film, I didn't. I, I liked it immediately. I was like, wow, that was a great film. But it didn't knock my socks off. And still to this day, if I was... To, to rank all of David Lynch's films, Blue Velvet is, is pretty far down on the list. Um, not because I dislike it in any way, but his other films offer me more. They, they offer me things that I enjoy or relate to more. And I think a part of that is because Blue Velvet is just about the darkness. It opens up with what we imagine perfect Americana to be. You know, the kids playing in the street, the firemen waving by the perfect white picket fence the roses the the guy watering his lawn it's it's perfect americana and then when jeffrey's father has suffers his attack the the kink in the hose we drill down into the grass that's right there next to him and we see the bugs and the 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 the, the, the disgustingness of nature the the what we try to ignore but it's there in this beauty um and when the film genuinely starts what we do is we travel inside the ear the camera literally goes inside the ear um and so now we're inside truly inside of america and it's gross and it's ugly and there's no there's nothing pretty no matter what we try to do that we think is right um this this darkness overshadows it and for dennis hopper's character is such a big component of that because he is so 
fucking terrifying. His character is absolutely one of the most terrifying characters ever committed to celluloid. Um, and he's so menacing. Like, you, when you're watching the film, you feel like he's menacing you directly instead of just being a character on the screen that is attacking or screaming at uh, another character. You feel like he's, me- he's menacing you through the screen. And when the film ends, the evil is defeated, as the, the meme from Cabin in the Woods goes. But when it shows us the, the positives and the light, it's that same fake um, scenery that we saw at the beginning. It's, it's the imagined goodness, because we're now ignoring the dark. Just because we defeated one level of dark, we're still ignoring the dark. We're going back to our pleasant imagining um, imagined lives We're, and we see that so much in the news and everything today you know with especially with the whole trump thing coming not quite gone make america great again what what, what was that ever saying they wanted the image of the 50s when america was supposedly so great but that ignores the struggle that the black community had to go through the violence um, the the dark underbelly that existed in the 50s when America was quote unquote great. Now with the news and everybody trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, we're shedding light more on these injustices and these violences. And people are saying, "Man, this isn't the America I remember." They want to go back to the fake, the imagined, because it, it was never real. The the image of the great America was never real, and that's what David Lynch is showing in this movie and it's super fucking depressing even though you know the robins come and shed light on everything we know that it's a fake light we know that we're just pushing the underbelly back down and that itself is so depressing and and that's something that that i wasn't quite ready for when i first saw the film was just how dark and depressing the film overall is yeah i would largely agree that the probably the biggest criticism is there's not really a sense of optimism at all. It's a fake optimism. Um, and I mean, this is 86. So you mentioned making America great again. This is like the apex of mourning in America. Um, and I know Lynch, I think wrote this movie in the seventies. Correct. I think I uh, he was writing it when he was making Dune. Okay. So but, but he, was, he, he was making Dune in the early eighties. So, yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Eight, the, this mid eighties, there was, this just huge way and even in hollywood was like especially guilty of it like there are all these movies set in these idyllic suburbs um either they were you know they either called back to the 50s or they were set in the 80s and either way like you know there's these teenagers or, or fresh out of high school young young people who you know get in these capers that you know have no actual stakes um but they're fun adventures and, and they just show like how life's so wonderful for for people and like that's how this movie opens it just opens like those movies would open and then uh we're just crushed into this dark world that there's like you know the depraved underbelly of the, the perfect town lumberton um and we're not ever told that yeah things are gonna you know now that now that frank booth's gone everything in Lumberton's going to be hunky-dory again. We're just told, like, yeah, it's still fake, and there's still going to be another Frank Booth. So, yeah, there's no optimism at all. Like, I mean, like, you can almost sense that there's some anger that, that David Lynch is just, like, so exhausted of seeing and hearing all the slogans of mourning in America. 
um, when he's writing this movie and putting it together. And then visually, it's just, I mean, it's, I think, I don't think it's very subtle at all. Um, and I don't know, and subtlety is not, not the most important thing to me, but like nothing about this movie is very subtle. It's hitting you on its head. It doesn't make you leave and go, what did that symbolize? It kind of tells you, right? It, mm-hmm. It's telling you what it's, what it is. It's not, and, and it's a lot of his later works that I've worked, that I've had the, you know, experience and from my understanding, they're a bit more, you know, you, you, you leave watching it. And you go, okay, so that was, oh, what was that part? What was, that was great, but what was that one part about? What was he trying to show me there? Whereas here he's he's showing you, you know, a kink in the hose and a guy collapses from an attack. It's like, well, duh. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and most of it is that same kind of, don't go to Lincoln Street. Hey, I'm going to Lincoln Street. <laughs> it's yeah. so very, yeah. It, it, I, would, I would think, I, I think... For for anybody who is trying to experience David Lynch, this may be the most easily accessible film, but it's probably in terms of what he's capable of, one of the less representative ones. Yeah, and and as we see from from Dana's experience, you know, because it is so dark and depressing, if you're not attuned to those types of film, it can be repellent. Um, we have to remember David Lynch was nominated for best director for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennis Hopper won for this film. I don't care that the statue said Hoosiers. He won for this film. The Academy <laughs> was just cowards and nominated him for the wrong film. Um, and but but a lot of critics really hated it. Most famously was uh, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert despised this film. He he abhorred it. And one of his big things was the sexual violence and the the, degra- the degradation that happens to Isabella Rossellini's character at the hands of Frank Booth. Like 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 Lynch is you know condoning this or, or something. Um, th- this has never been a an easy film to just say. Yeah, no, it's a good film. You should watch it. It's always been. Hey, it's pretty fucked up. If you don't like fucked up things, you might not like it. Um, but there's a lot to chew on if you're open to it. And if you look through Roger Ebert's. Uh, like all of his reviews, you can tell that there's a certain type of film that he hates. Blue Velvet is like that would have been like an obvious, yeah, no, he's not going to like this movie uh, type of thing. But people did still respond to it positively. It's always come with that that contrast. Yeah, I I did did some reading, and it sounds like this is one of the those movies that really benefited from video stores, where you know it was. After it was out of theaters, you know, you, you had the, the video nerds who were just basically saying, "Hey, check this movie out." If you're into this, if you're into some something that's a little dark and and not and kind of you know against the grain, check this out. And you know that leads into the '90s with the in, independent film boom, where there's a lot of stuff that's really subversive that in a short short span of time got made. Um, it feels in some ways a precursor to that. Um, I would I would I would envision it almost in that same bucket, even though I, I don't really consider David Lynch in that same bucket, but this particular film I would put in that that same class. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, they include a part of that Ebert quote in the Criterion booklet, it says, uh, or Ebert says specifically, uh, incensed by the film, accused Lynch of misogyny and asserted that Rossellini was, quote, degraded, slapped around, and humiliated and undressed in front of the camera, which I guess those are all technically true. But uh, and when, when you ask an actress to endure those experiences, you should keep your side of the bargain by putting her in an important film, end quote. 
Um, and that was uh, Christine McKenna who quoted that, and she later said that uh, basically Ebert's criticism of the film has not really aged well because now um, we, maybe not we, but like the collective critics of Blue Velvet have realized that like the all of this stuff is in here pretty intentionally and like as Chris said it's very obtuse in how it goes about it uh, it is saying that like these parts of society exist and they are uh, the worst parts of society but there's always someone like Jeffrey and like uh, Laura Dern's father who I don't remember immediately Detective uh, Williams Detective Williams um, they are here to try to solve uh solve and fix these these worst parts of of the world Mm -hmm. yeah and i think the the part about ebert's uh attack that has aged the least is the part about it being not an important film that's what over the years blue velvet has become an important film like it's one of the key films about america um one of very few films capture america so perfectly like you watch this movie and you're looking at America, no matter what city, no matter what state, you're looking at what America looks like and what America is and what America tries to be. Yeah, and um, I mean, especially nowadays that we get uh, so much stuff on social media with, uh, and I realize this is three three men talking about uh, stuff like violence against women. So uh, that comes with all of the necessary caveats, but. There's uh, Me Too, there is Speaking Up, I believe it was Speaking Up or Speaking Out in the, the wrestling community, um, and we we basically daily hear stories about someone who uh, has a gun and shoots or kills their spouse, and it is usually a man, and they are usually killing a woman, because the women are too scared to do literally anything uh, because of Frank Booth-like characters in real life that mm-hmm. uh, are doing these things, and then we see... I guess this is uh, 1980s when he's writing this, so the rise of uh, current conservatism, like that started around that time when Reagan was the president and started the uh, trickle-down economics, which led us to very low tax rates, but unlike the current um, Republican exceptionalism, Reagan was actually anti-gun, because he was like almost shot in California or something, I don't remember the details, I wasn't alive. Yeah, well he he also, he's the cause of the strict gun laws in California, uh, but that's because he didn't want black people having guns uh, that right. was a response uh, to the Black Panthers yeah. but anyway um, so yeah, so I, I think it's interesting how we're talking about the negatives of the film, but they, they turn into a lot of the positives um what are some of the stuff that we really enjoyed about the film what about chris um i mean number one dennis hopper is just such a despicable villain like he just does it it just plays that character so well and you'd like and it's always a balancing act i think when someone is playing a villain of the frank booth type to not be to not play it to a point where it feels like an endorsement um but he's playing frank booth and you're like this guy's really entertaining because you are watching a film you need to be entertained when anything's going on but he plays this character like really entertaining just sick twisted person and but at the same time you're like i really cannot wait to see see him get you know his comeuppance and and uh he's the glue without him there's not really much of a movie um and there's other there's other great actors 
um, in it. Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern are David Lynch mainstays and two of the best, two of the best at what they do. Um, but you know, they're, they're just, they're just, you know, part of the picture. The, the picture is, is this at the center is Frank Booth. Um, I think that's the main takeaway I would have about the movie is, is like, that's, this is why you watch it. Um, to see just Dennis Hopper play this character. Um, is he the only character who uses any profanity in the entire movie? I think so. Yeah. It really does feel like it. I stopped. I start. So when he, so when he came on, cause there had, I know there had been no, no profanity before, um, or like 99% sure. But when he started cussing, like just, you know, figuring out as many different ways to shoehorn the F word into, <laughs> into his dialogue. I was like, this feels like very opt again, very obtuse. Like he must be the only guy who's, who's using profanity in this movie. Um, and, um, I mean, other positives, the opening scene, just, just absolutely brilliant. Most of the scenes just, again, we've, we've talked about this before with David Lynch having the background as a painter, like David Lynch is not giving you an opportunity to miss out on the scenery. Like he's showing, he is pushing it and putting it in, in your face. Um, every, so many scenes just look like they are a painting. Um, but he's obviously got to have actors moving in them, but, um, you know, it, you really, he's, he's so strong and capable, capable at that. Uh, it's on really on full display here. Um, the color palette he uses, um, I, this is kind of a, kind of a, you know, very focused on colors that I don't want to say they clash, but you know, she's wearing blue with what's it? Red carpet in her, um, apartment, right? Isabella Rosalini's character. Yeah. It's like very primary color focused, um, which, you know, a lot of filmmakers don't, aren't, don't do that. Um, because it's difficult to pull off. Um, to basically, you know, have have your scenes look kind of unnatural, but also um, very like like they're like they're just occurring, and we're just observing from a window almost. Um, he pulls that off. Um, I just you know plenty of positives. A lot a lot of them um, are due to David Lynch being a director. Um, but there's not really a scene in this movie that is like, oh, just throw this away. You know, it, it it's lazily done, it's sloppily done. They're all very strong. Each mm-hmm. each different scene. It's funny you say there's no scene that can be thrown away because they're all so important. Because actually, there is a three hour and fifty four minute cut or something of this, and he threw away every scene that was not important. And now we get this movie. Yeah, I was reading that too. And on the Criterion disc, there's uh, like fifty minutes of extra footage. I forgot to rewatch it. Uh, for the podcast, but I had watched it at some point. They're all still really good scenes, but he just this is the epitome of all killer no filler. <laughs> um, like, even even the extra stuff was still good, but it's kind of you know, alright, maybe I can get re- I, maybe I can get away without having that scene in there, and it's just, this is distilled, this is perfect. Yeah, and as I read the Wikipedia article, I find out that Megan Mullaney, Mullaney was uh, one of the cucks in the movie. <laughs> Who's Megan Mullally? Uh, played in Will and Grace. I believe she is married to Nick Offerman, yeah. And she played, like, the, the really uh, wild woman that was, like, super crazy after, uh, what's his face? Ron, Ron Swanson? Yeah, yeah, she's, like, she's, yeah, she's, she's, like, the extremely, uh, <laughs> like, she's the extremely horny librarian that Ron Swanson hates, but also <laughs> was married to. Yeah. <laughs> 
goodness. Any Parks and Rec. Yeah, no, you know, I did, I did see that she had, she was in scenes of her cut. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's impressive that he's able to pare down a movie to 80s theatrical runtime standards without gutting it to the point where it's, it's unintelligible. Yeah, cool two mm. hours in this movie. And, um, it didn't really feel that long. Um, I mean, when you're, when you're on some of the scenes that feel long, like, uh, literally anytime. Frank Booth is giving something deplorable. Uh, it, it, that feels long, but like the movie itself doesn't feel long, and only those scenes feel long because you feel like you should not be watching this thing happening, and you just want to turn away from the screen completely. Uh, but what I what I liked about this movie, Lordern, um, I believe this is her second role, uh, completes third feature film. Third feature film, okay. Um, complete uh, revelation here as well as in literally anything else she is in. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin, I feel like, really comes uh, together as as an actor. Um, he did not quite get that in Dune, and that might have been the, the consequence of just Dune existing as, as it was. Um, Isabella Rossellini, famous wife of Martin Scorsese, or Marty, as she calls her, um, or as, yeah, as she calls him, um, also incredible in this role, and uh, when you asked about swearing, I wondered whether Dorothy Valen swear at all because she, when she is interacting with Kyle McLaughlin in the in the early goings of the movie, she is really kind of emulating um, the Frank Booth character as best she can, I think, and she, uh, uh, I think she really takes from from that like she doesn't know what to do in this situation but she does know that she has experienced this kind of thing so that that's what she's doing but it's really more of a uh like she wants something something or in this case someone to take take out all of her frustrations on of being so powerless to be able to help her her husband and her son and um in those cases i like the the fucked up nature of the scenes yeah she's showing like what it feels like to me, she she's showing that sexual power is the greatest type of power because she's already got Jeffrey at, at knife point, but once she strips him naked or has him stripped naked and he's standing there, that's when he becomes truly powerless and she starts, you know, caressing him and kissing on him and that doesn't turn him on per se. It continues to terrify him. It's one of the things that I really find interesting about the film that I really like is it shows us a little bit uh, into David Lynch's uh, sexual politics. Like he's obviously not, you know, anti-sex or anything, but he believes that sex has this this negative power over people. So it ties. When I rewatched this and I finally jumped it up to full five stars, it was after I saw the re, uh, Twin Peaks: The Return. Um, Twin Peaks: The Return is the key to to all of his work, and it really helped me see some of the the implications that he's making in regards to sex. The the line when when Isabella Rossellini is standing there in front of Jeffrey Beaumont's house naked and she's beaten, she's got black and blue bruises all over her. Um, when they go into Sandy's house later, she's telling, um, telling Sandy and her mom, he put his disease in me. But, and then, and then that makes me think back to Eraserhead and I, how I interpret the opening scene of Eraserhead as being this really crazy abstract, uh, 
view of of someone having sex and the the baby looking thing is his sperm it's his disease and the disease birthed the mutant baby something that he wasn't quite ready for and didn't know how to take care of and there's stuff in twin peaks about or in twin peaks the return about things entering into other people's body that is can be interpreted as the introduction of evil the introduction of of not so much uh i can't think of the word but the elimination of innocence and when you have sex that is the elimination of innocence that's when your innocence goes away in twin peaks fire walk with me that is a very very strong image um and so it was it's interesting in this film to see it as he put his disease in me something very very straightforward that is something that he returns to in a lot of his other work um not so straightforwardly uh but it kind of opens up uh how i how i view these other scenes and these other elements in his other work um i i I love i love that and how isabella rossellini just commands every scene that she's in even though she is playing basically the battered housewife character she she has she tries to use her sexuality as power and she succeeds you know there's there's very positive elements to this but holy fuck she's just so heartbreaking and when she is having sex with jeffrey and tells him to to hit her like it's heartbreaking it's it's because that's the only thing she knows because of frank and that's what she's become accustomed to because of frank and she thinks that that the the violence equals pleasure and it just it's so sad Um, and And she she does such a great job of conveying that and so does lynch with his cinematography with like the close-ups of her teeth when she's saying these phrases oh so good yeah it's not just like this is the only thing she knows now it's like she has forgotten how to love uh, otherwise because she has a husband uh, she has a son i presume they did not do these things before but uh because of her experiences she's just uh completely forgotten what what those previous uh happy sexual experiences were like anything else there Corey? um oh the scene when they uh they take jeffrey and frank uh covers his face with lipstick and then kisses jeffrey uh that is like peak frank and probably the best of his disturbing scenes yes oh my god oh my god candy-colored clown called the sandman baby (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i love you know like i was talking about earlier how how terrifying and menacing frank booth is i love this character because dennis hopper plays him so good um the whole sucking on nitrous is is, that's it that's an image like you don't forget that like and it feels it I, I can't think of any other movie that really does that except for Little Shop of Horrors, uh, which I think came out the same year or maybe a year after. But that is just, it feels iconic. Like, there's nothing that relates, that, that can quite stand up to that. And it feels like there has to have been other movies that have ripped this off because it's just, once you see that, you forever see it. And every time I, I, I watch a movie that has Dennis Hopper in it, he becomes Frank Booth. Um the candy colored clown uh ben you're so fucking suave um like everything about him is the the whole menacing terrifying nature he's so good at it 
that I love I love him as a villain. I love this villainous character, uh, which sounds weird, but hopefully my meaning is understood. Um, yeah, even the last or the most famous part of uh, Heineken, fuck Heineken. It's <laughs> just like the smallest thing where obviously who gives a shit what, what you're drinking? But uh, Frank Booth gives a shit what you're drinking, and he doesn't want it to be Heineken. That's right. Yeah, I I can't like I honestly just like. I mean, I, I, I'm not exaggerating. Like we that we 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 discovered Blue Velvet in college, and that line whenever, and perhaps Blue Ribbon because this was the late 2000s when PBR was undergoing this weird renaissance. Uh, that was that was a line that PBR was introduced with any basically any time someone had it. But um, but it's like such a weird like nobody cares. Like he just says it, and it's so iconic. It's an innocuous line that means nothing to the plot. But it's like the just endured now for 35 years since this movie has ended, um, and I will never ever be able to look at a Pabst Blue Ribbon or a Heineken without thinking of Frank Booth. No, yeah, you can't. Yeah, and we even have like they go to the uh, the bar, not bar, nightclub where um, Dorothy Valens is singing, and we have this very awkward scene where <laughs> Jeffrey is like, "Do you like Heineken?" I love Heineken, and we have no idea why Dex's there until we get to this scene, where it's like, oh, that's that's why we're having this weird two-minute interaction with Heineken. <laughs> I mean, what is the obsession with Heineken here, man? <laughs> oh, I get you. Yeah, I see. I didn't see this when I was in college, uh, but I did see it in the late 2000s. This was my first David Lynch film. Um, I first watched it. Um, for a podcast that I was doing at the time called The Everyman Critics. Uh, it was suggested by my friend Dan, who was a co-host. At, um, co-host. We, we would just, every episode, we would just have someone pick a movie, and then we would all watch it together. And this was one that Dan had us watch when it was his turn. And I had always wanted to watch David Lynch films. I had always been obsessed with David Lynch films without ever watching them. Um, until I got to, to see this one, and then I just borrowed like all of Dan's DVDs uh, <laughs> and watched them all. That was in 2008 or 2009. I found you on and, Apple Podcasts. It says 2010. Let's see. Shouldn't shouldn't still be up there. <laughs> I, you probably can't listen to anything, but it exists. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the files are gone into internet deafness, which is good because I'm not super proud of some of the stuff. It's all good. Another thing I'd, I'd probably want to say, uh, maybe a last thing to say about um, Blue Velvet, is it really it, it it might be the most important film to understand David Lynch, but like the least important film to appreciate David Lynch. I think like he that feels about right. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's like this is this is David Lynch telling you like. If there's one movie where David Lynch tells you what he's about, it's this movie. And then all the others you are going to watch, and you're going to go, oh, let me re- refer to the, my Blue Velvet textbook to reconcile <laughs> what's happening here. Oh, that's what he – yeah. And it's, 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 it, it, I think that might be the best way, best way to describe this movie. Um, it is definitely, I would say, part of the undergraduate college canon at this point. Um, maybe not now that it's kind of dif- more, a little more difficult to find streaming. Um, but definitely at, 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 you know, at a point in time, especially nineties and two thousands, it was one of those movies that, you know, would be like, Hey man, you you see this movie blue velvet? You gotta, gotta come over and watch it. I got the, got the DVD of it, you know, 
the DVD gets passed around 20, 30 friends. Um, it, it definitely is one of those films um, in that, that category. But in the David Lynch pantheon, it is, you know, one of his movies. It's really good. It's really good. But it's, it's, it's best, probably best described as there's, there's, more, there's better things to come. Yeah, it's a masterpiece in my opinion. It which, is. Yeah, it's which, great. Which tell, it's, tells you a lot about what I think about his other work. It works more yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah, I would not be surprised if uh, at the end of this all, Blue Velvet, like you, Chris, is near the bottom of David Lynch's filmography in terms of my favorites. But yeah, it's still an incredible, incredible film. And unfortunately, I have to drop off, so I'm going to stop by recording here. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman. Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I close my eyes Then I drift away Into the mad Alright, so Corey had to drop off he had to run. He had plans that got moved up. Um, so is there anything else that you want to talk about with Blue Velvet, Chris, before we wrap this up? Um, no, I think I got most of my feelings, thoughts on the movie um, out already. Again, I mean, like, I, I want to stress, like, this is a really, really great movie. Um, so, you know. I'm just glad I'm, I'm glad we were able to, to spend time on on the things it doesn't do perfectly because there are things it does perfectly as well um, that I feel at this point in time are written about and described endlessly. But some of the, the negative may not be as often discussed, um, and I'm glad we were able to discuss that on here. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty difficult movie at times yeah. to watch. Um, Baby Wants to Fuck is... <laughs> <laughs> that is up there um and i think it's important like that's why when when we first started talking about the david lynch movies back with the shorts that's why i was you know wanted to make sure that we talked about the positive and the negatives because this is truly david lynch's art and mm-hmm. i know people think it sounds uh pretentious or whatever to call film art but it is it is art. All films are art, whether it's good or bad or commercial or personal. Um, and so when we're, you're watching these David Lynch things, he's putting so much into them that it's not all going to fire on the positive cylinder. And I think it's important to talk about that because I think it adds a lot to the discussion. I think it, it does. Makes it, it, it makes it much more well-rounded when you're talking about, oh, man, this shit here, this shit there. Yeah, I, I, I like David Lynch especially because he is openly an artist. Like he, he approaches his films as an artist. He, he, uh, we've discussed the fact that the guy, I mean, if he could just do one thing in life, it would basically just be to smoke cigarettes and paint, oh, drink um, coffee. Don't oh, drink that. coffee. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think, I think he almost you would be doing his films a disservice by saying yeah that was awesome that was great i loved it like yeah i loved it but there's things that you know because david lynch is doing so much in everything he makes that there's things that you know are going to misfire that need to be discussed to really appreciate his work as art um and 
I won't get into my rant about how people can't take the slightest criticism, yet they want things to be treated as art. But to really treat something as art, you have to accept that it is not perfect. Nothing will ever be perfect. If we are able to make the perfect piece of media, then everybody else should just quit. We've got it. We're done. Well, you know, I I agree. And that's why, you know, nothing is hit quite the same since Twin Peaks The Return. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should just quit after that. Um, <laughs> but okay, so let's go ahead and wrap it up. We did have a couple of listener questions. Let's see. First up, from our good friend Dawn Bunny Cartoon on Twitter, she asked two questions. The first one is iconic opening scene or most iconic opening scene. I mean, it's just infinitely memorable as long as you ever watch. I think any movie you ever watch. Like the opening scene and it, it opening scenes can, can be a cup, you know, go a couple ways. And I don't think they make or break a movie, but God damn, did, did the opening scene make this movie? Cause you're just like, all right, well I'm on the, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm not getting up until for now. Like, it's just such a fantastic opening scene and it ends like just start to finish. It's just fantastic. It's just summing up what we're about to experience. Yeah. I lean towards most iconic opening scene but the the, the weird thing is like i can't i'm sure that there are opening scenes that i enjoy more i'm sure there's opening scenes that are better but when i try to think of all these other opening scenes i can't when i think of the opening scene to blue velvet it's there and i think that's really what makes it so iconic is because it's there. When you think about that opening to Blue Velvet, it's there. What, what, what's the opening to X movie or Y movie or what opening is better? I don't fucking know. I'm sure there was one, but it's not coming to my mind. Blue Velvet comes to the mind. Yeah, I would I would say the the one scene that you'll I think will always stick with you for Blue Velvet is the opening. Um, and if there's other great opening scenes, there's other parts of the movie that those films there's other parts of them that um, for whatever reason, you know, the openings don't come to mind, but the opening to blue velvet will always come to mind whenever it's brought up. It'll be the first thing that probably comes back well, that and Frank Booth. But you know, the first thing that really will come to mind is that op- is the opening scene. So yeah, most iconic is a fair assessment just yeah. in terms of the way that it'll stick with you. All right. Her second question is also, where does his role in this rank to y'all on best Dennis Hopper villain? Number one. Look, pop quiz hot shot. If your answer is not number one, you're not doing it right. And I know I opened <laughs> it up with his iconic line from another iconic villain. But like I said earlier, when I think about Dennis Hopper, like I, I love so many Dennis Hopper performances. Uh, one of my uh, favorites has always been – his uh, hippie teacher from my science project, which is a underseen gem. And even when I watch that movie, the way he talks now, it's Frank. Booth. It's always Frank Booth that comes out of his mouth. Um, when I think about him, this, this is, yeah, I think, I mean, and again, like this, we, we discussed, we touched on it. This did revitalize his career after, you know, years of kind of a floundering career, probably what about a decade decade plus this really brought him back and it brought him back like he played this character and from then on this was the character more or less he was playing 
not not in every circumstance, but I mean the one the ones we remember, they all just call back to Frank Booth. So so f- anyway, so our next and final question comes from our good friend Pat's Pat's Prime. How do you feel about Heineken? Heineken, fuck that shit. Pat's Blue Ribbon. <laughs> um, it's uh you know one of the more go to when you know you got to get those big twenty four pack beers for hosting people or you know not something we've had to do recently in recent times but you know one of the ones that if i have to get you know a lot of beer to host people i'm not going to spend a, a buttload of money on on it uh heineken's one of the go-tos um you know i've actually you know it's it's as a beer it's average but you know i will drink it certainly before a paps blue ribbon geez <laughs> heineken Fuck that shit. There it is. I was giving that to you. <laughs> Thank you. No, I don't even – I don't like Heineken. <laughs> I drank it once when I was in high school and I was just like, fuck that shit. <laughs> but no, I won't drink Paps Blue Ribbon either. That's the smile. Yeah, Paps, Paps Blue Ribbon is, is just – I mean, hey, it's just – just tastes really bad. Not not a good beer. Beer <laughs> no. quality has improved dramatically. I mean, even 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 going to Heineken, beer quality has you know improved much beyond the Heineken recipe. But yes. All right, that's it. Um, join us again next month where we will be talking about season one of Twin Peaks. That is the pilot episode. We will be watching the aired pilot. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the international pilot, but. I'm not going to make everybody else watch that. And the episodes one through seven, so a total of eight episodes for Twin Peaks. I can't believe we're doing this, Chris. We're going to be talking about Twin Peaks, my favorite thing in the whole world. I am. I am. I'm looking forward to it again. I, I mentioned like I, I haven't seen all of Twin Peaks. It's it's one of those shows that you, you, you I think most people start watching and then especially because I started watching it before streaming was so sophisticated. It uh, faded off my radar. Uh, I'm looking forward to just going through the whole thing. And I think those eight episodes will be a uh, maybe a weekend activity because <laughs> I, yeah. I don't envision myself being able to go, yeah, I'm not I'm, – I'm going to take a break here. Yeah, and, and I know Corey, Corey has seen the first season of Twin Peaks before. Uh, he stopped watching shortly after they solved the – the Laura Palmer mystery, quote unquote. Mm. Um, this will be my like tenth or eleventh time watching uh, Twin <laughs> Peaks. Second time this year. Uh, About that. Yeah, it's all good. I watch it a lot. So, um, where can we find you on the internet, Chris? Over on Twitter at Antonius Pius, um, and that's about that's about it. And you can find me on the Twitters at GoKoofy, uh, Letterboxed at GoKoofy, and then I have my YouTube channel, um, Cups of Night Films. You can find me over there, uh, and I'm sure Corey will be coming back in the rest of the episode with somebody I don't know who what he has planned, but it's a sports show, I'm sure, because uh, that's what we do at this podcast besides talk about David Lynch films. <laughs> All right. Time for a break. All right. One, two, three, four.
are back. Ink and Helen have joined me. Hello. Hello. And we're here to talk about Skate the Infinity. Um, not not recently ending anymore. By the time this will come out, but uh, recently ending as we talk about it right now. Um, 12 of anime series about skateboarding. Uh, that's it. Thanks for the podcast call. Let's all leave. Yep, sounds right. You know, it's just about some some guys. They're skateboarding, and they have some elaborate setups. You know, some people, they really get into this whole underground skateboarding race to the, not to the death, but to, like, the injury, you know, deal. That wasn't yeah, that's Race S1000. Wasn't there a, a plot point in there where someone gig die skateboarding on, uh, on their old track? I don't I think, think so. he died. I think he was just injured. Okay. Badly. Exactly. No, badly. Oh, okay. But yeah, this is what happens when people have wild and crazy skateboarding techniques. You know, like jump off your skateboard and hit somebody in the face of it. Well, yeah. You know, so appear uh, to be going forward while you're going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Clothesline them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should actually explain, you know, how skateboarding works in this series. <laughs> Yeah, for so uh, for those not familiar with skateboarding or only familiar with Tony Hawk, is not not really like that. This is um, skateboarding in the like downhill racing type of skateboarding. Um, I, I don't think this is a real kind of skateboarding, FYI. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of this was made up for the show. <laughs> yeah, and it appears to be a uh, skateboarding dramatized version of like Initial D. Um, as far as I know, Initial D, I've watched like one episode. Um, but the, their main character, Reki, goes to uh, this place called S, where they do races down a... Uh, I guess there's a couple tracks, but we don't really get any um, indication of that there's more than one track. There's only one starting line, it seems, and they all end up at this abandoned... Where is it? Like, factory place? Yeah, factory, yeah. mine place... Yeah, I, I think some people factory, just choose just... rather in, some people just choose rather inventive routes to get to the bottom, since the idea is that anything goes in this race. You know, if your stick is being you know some sort of like wrestling heel who uses like aerosol spray in your opponent's faces, go for it. That's okay. <laughs> like the cops aren't use... gonna come. You know, just go for it. Just live out your wild, feral skateboarding, larping dreams. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to use AI technology to have not only your basic board, but then all-terrain boards, and then super sleek, stylish airfoil airfoil boards, yeah, sure, that's allowed too. Yep. Or a board that is just an AI and tells you exactly how to skateboard. Um, so anyway, Reki uh, meets the new King Kong, half Japanese, half Canadian, Longa Hasegawa. Um, I don't know whether it's Longa or Ranga, because Longa is not like a a uh, Western American name that I have ever heard in my life. So, I mean, we also have to get past the fact that this is a kid who grew up in Canada and yet has no concept of skateboarding culture. Yeah. Which I feel like you kind of as get through osmosis in the U.S. I assumed it was the same in Canada. So, um, yeah, we just can't think too hardly, too strongly about any of those parts. Yeah. So he. Longa is a former skate snowboarder, and he's uh, kind of listless. He lost his father, um, who was his snowboard- snowboarding partner and teacher and stuff, and now he uh, jumps into skateboarding. Um, eventually, they go up against some people, become friends with some people. Uh, Shadow, who is like a 
heavy metal makeup dude, uh, Cherry Blossom, who has the aforementioned AI, Skateboard Joe, who is just this muscly guy, and uh, Adam, who seems to, uh, I think it was you, Helen, that just, uh, he needs to get laid. I, I I can definitely believe me saying that at some point. <laughs> also, there is one more, there is one more character, um, Mia, who's like this teenage upcoming superstar in the skateboarding world, and like the actual skateboarding hmm, world. Yeah, He's right. probably going to go to the Olympics, you know. And then in his free time, he moonlights as a little piece of crap in a hot topic hoodie from circa 2009 <laughs> doing skateboarding tricks. Yeah, who can't pull himself away from his video games. His RPGs. Mm-hmm. You no, know, we never see him actually playing a video game. I think. I think he just makes references. You know, maybe he's a fake gamer boy. But that's maybe. all he references, like all the time. <laughs> he just be reading. I, I, I believe that is fairly typical for young teenage boys these days. You know, them and the Fortnites, and I, I can't even fake this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the show is about those characters. They go through, or they go uh, into these races. Eventually, there's a tournament uh, organized by Adam um, because he just wants to uh, skateboard against the best skateboarder, who ends up, spoilers, being uh, Longa because he's sort of this prodigy dude who can incorporate some snowboarding techniques and stuff. And like, it is, it is ridiculous. It is campy. It is over the top. Um, just uh, a whole bunch of fun in 12 episodes, but what do you, what do you two think? To be clear, Adam is sort of the one who is set up um, this um, set up, I guess, setting. Um, he's a local politician with issues, so he's like paid off the police to not patrol around there so they never get caught, basically. Um, and just has like a really flamboyant skateboarding personality. Um, that like I'm not kidding. One of the best tweets I saw about this show was from somebody on Twitter who was remarking that all of the teenagers seem like perfectly normal, like realistic teenagers, and then all of the adults seem like feral skateboarding LARPers. And it's like, yeah, it's true. You know, Ranga, um, Reki, um, Mia, they're all, you know, fairly normal. And then we have Adam, who is like the matador of love and is like going to extreme lengths to engage in like some. He, he feels bad about doing skateboarding, but he still likes it. So it's like this is, I don't know, maybe this is his kink. It's its very hard to not look at everything he does and wonder how sexual it is. Not just because he's queer-coded, but also because, I don't know, I think he might have been in the nude the first time we see him in the series. <laughs> A little he hard just to wants tell, to you know, feel. he's a silhouette. He, he just wants to feel, Helen. He doesn't feel anything anymore. Uh, he needs to yes, experience he, he, sensation through skateboarding. He's greatly repressed, you know, he's been abused his whole life, you know, and so now he can only let go in secret, yada, 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 ignoring the fact that he's got a childhood friend right there waiting to <laughs> be his dog, basically. Yeah. This show only. is very silly, but it's also fun. I feel like we should clarify this, that it's not actually a bad anime, even though Ink is here. It is just, it, it gets more and more ridiculous, especially after the halfway mark. Like, yeah. the first half of the show, you could sort of buy into the skateboarding, then by the second half, it's like, I got you now. Now we're just going to break out all the weird things. Like, oh god, like, one of the guys in one of his races, he decides to go faster by just planking on his skateboard the entire time. <laughs> and I was like, it takes me a lot for me to believe that someone has abs that strong. I like the, uh, the gymnastics there, just jumping off and then repelling off of a, 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 a cliff face to sort of oh, yeah. 
this will save me time. Then I don't have to slow down for turns. I can just like bumper car off a wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely but, makes yeah, sense. For, but for all for all the silliness, like that's kind of what you're here for. I mean, well, if, yes. if if Magical 100%. Boys were uh, skateboarders, that is the show. We just don't get the transformation sequences. <laughs> yeah, everybody gets changed off camera, I guess. Yeah. Oh man. There was one shot in the show, and they're going uh, to the racetrack. And so um, I think it's Shadow Driving or Cherry Blossoms. Two of them are in the front seat, and the boys are in the back. And I'm like, this looks like cosplayers going to a con. You know, <laughs> someone else with like one of those like a little ninja face mask that would be fairly COVID compliant, you know, and like some sort of like modernized Hakama. And I'm like, God, this gives me such going to a con vibes. Yeah, <laughs> gosh. But I think like what I love so much about this show and why the last half works so well is like it was just so grounded. In uh, I mean, it was still ridiculous in the first half, but basically we're with Reki and Longa the whole time, uh, nurturing Longa's talent as a skateboarder, and Reki just like finally having this buddy his age that is able to skateboard around with him. Uh, we have a little conflict with uh, Shadow first and then he becomes like a I don't know, chaperone slash uh, <laughs> a very unwilling chaperone. <laughs> yeah, for for the two uh, and then also with Mia who's like immensely talented much more than those two when they meet um, and then like from there it turns like up to uh, 50 billion from 10 uh, where we get the cosplayers going to the continent. It doesn't I mean, I'm willing to buy into how ridiculous it is because of how much I have already fallen in love with the characters. Oh, and to be clear, like, everyone, you're not supposed to acknowledge that you know people from this event, like, outside in real life, but basically everybody is able to recognize each other, so it's just very funny. I do have to wonder if Joe and Cherry Blossom know that Adam is the local politician, I think they probably do, but that must just be some really weird disconnect sometimes. Like, your local diet member who may or may not be getting involved in a scandal on his free time is jumping out of airplanes with parachutes to go challenge people to escape to the death, basically, you know? <laughs> well, they have to know because they were the only couple of people who were allowed to see Adam before the mask and, like, you know, in private, so they'd have to know. I mean, he was still wearing a hoodie, which very magically just stayed up no matter how much wind was blowing, so, you know. True, true. The long right. bangs like and my, my physics. My reading on that backstory was that they were all buggies in, in, like, the same high school or something? I don't know. Nah, it's definitely two different high schools. Um, Joe and Cherry Blossom went to the same school, but then Adam has a different uniform. So you see them meeting mm. up in that old mall, you know, for their first encounter, and it's definitely two different groups, and those two think they're so hot but then adam adam is just so much better than them oh and you can potentially read some sexual tension into that the english dub is definitely playing up some of that um which i think it's fine i have not watched the dub but i have seen a few excerpts from it with some truly amazing lines like um bitches and bros and non-binary hoes is um <laughs> that, 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 that is a line i like how the dub has casks uh what looks like the only Asian in the cast as the half-Japanese, half-white guy. I mean, to be fair, Ranga is, in fact, Asian by that yeah. measure. So. I just find it oh, yeah. uh, coincidental. Maybe that is actually ironic. I'm always like, is that irony? I don't know. I go no, back no, to the Futurama the, uh, song I would definitely irony. think that's ironic. <laughs> I 
going back to Shadow though, I I love how awkward he is. Like I, he's the only skater without actual skill. I mean, like some super zany skill. All he has is these firecrackers and stuff he throws in other people's faces to cheat. I mean, hey, <laughs> being able to throw those while you're skateboarding, you know, presumably light them on fire while skateboarding, that is a skill. That is a <laughs> real Maybe not hand-eye coordination, but you know, since he doesn't injure himself every time, like, that's some skill. But, like, him recognizing himself becoming the chaperone, which, you know, you guys were talking about earlier, uh, is the funniest thing, because you can clearly see him, like, trying to be a kid throughout this, and, like, <laughs> this is his last-ditch effort to be, like, part of the cool kid club, which this is. I mean, it's a, it's a secret society that skateboards. <laughs> Not so secretly. <laughs> and even with all his full, fa- with his full face of makeup, like everyone knows immediately that he is this guy working in this flower shop with an enormous crush on his manager. And so they could just find him and be like, "Hey, can you chaperone us for a trip? You know, we need some like rest and relaxation." I don't even remember why they had a beach episode, but it was fun. Oh, that's great. They were at a beach. Was... Did you forget the beach episode, Corey? The yes. one that ended with, like, the haunted trip to the hot springs? Oh, I remember the haunted trip to the hot springs. I didn't know they went to a beach for that. Yeah, they went to the beach earlier, and then, like, Mia, to, like, fuck with Joe, he comes up to Joe and acts like his son when Joe's trying to hit on ladies. <laughs> yeah. And then the show did have to have a recap episode, and apparently at some point in the recap episode, the actors were reading lines and being like oh yeah and after that point joe picked up cherry and threw him into the ocean <laughs> and my twitter timeline was like wait we didn't get that animated hang on i need more details you know <laughs> we do not watch if you the recap sk8 on uh, if you search sk8 on um google like the first thing that comes up is is sk8 bl and the answer is if you want it to be <laughs> i mean i don't know what the actual answer is on google but my answer is if you want it to be <laughs> I mean, it's definitely... I mean, the, you take your pick of pairings, and yeah, yeah. And it's an original series from the same director who did uh, Free and Banana Fish, which were two um, not very straight shows. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, given that context, how could you not call this BL? Especially, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all over the place. Uh, I don't think you have to read that far into it. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with Drive State, the main point of contention between Reki and Manga is uh, during the end is uh, how uh, standoffish Reki is being. Manga really wants him to commit and then, you know, it's just this back and forth between a lover's quarrel thing and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought the conflict between the two of them as the story goes towards its climax was pretty reasonable since Reki's been skateboarding for years and now he's suddenly seeing Longa like come out of nowhere and do things that nobody else can do and he's feeling kind of left behind and Reki is really talented at making skateboards and he likes doing that too but he doesn't want to settle for just being you know in the supporting role you know he doesn't want to be the support character who gets left behind when everyone else is doing cool races and I thought that was a really interesting uh, emotional conflict since I'm sure it's something that a lot of people think in life, especially if you know you're in a sport or other hobby and you're realizing you'll never be able to be, like, a professional in it. But you don't just want to, like, admit that to yourself. You know, you you, <laughs> you don't necessarily want to be, you know, in the pit crew. You know, some people are happy with that and some people aren't. So I yeah. thought that was a fairly... I, I liked seeing that Recky didn't, like, immediately resign himself to just being a sporting character. He's like, no, I still want to be a main character. It did drag out a little bit, but um, they, they got them together in the end, and 
I don't know, they are teenagers, so I'm, I'm willing to overlook a little bit of dragging out things for, you know, they are teenagers, anime teenagers, but teenagers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, like, that core conflict at the end is really what made the show uh, enjoyable beyond the fact that it was just, like, absurd eye candy to watch them skateboarding and do ridiculous skateboarding things like, like no real human could do. Um, but, yeah, very believable plotline of this person uh, being surpassed by a newer person and being like, well, do I suck? I would have bought I would have bought it a little more though had Reki really had some sort of ego in the beginning, which he was just kind of, hey, this is skateboarding, it's fun because it's skateboarding and it wasn't really in it for the competitions or uh, the fame or anything. And you know, you think, think he was in it for the competition. And since we see him, like, isn't like the first scene in the show him challenging someone to a beef or like close to the first scene by the way a beef is a competition between two skaters <laughs> they have beef with each other that you know you can pick this up in context <laughs> you have to be of a certain age to know the beef beef was a beef was a term back as the youngest back in the person day. on this podcast I, I don't think you really need to be a certain age for it <laughs> maybe beef as a uh, term has not hit tiktok yet so even younger people don't know it it's come back in style <laughs> Thanks, anime. <laughs> uh, but even if it was, like it, it wasn't prominent. Like he, the the main focus at the beginning of the show was just this developing friendship between the two, and you know, I, it's totally relatable that that sort of jealousy that would be, build. And I like the fact that they did it between the two, not on the racetrack, but in you know, just during their hangout session when he noticed you know Longa could jump so high, um, and that was like, oh, it's a really good moment to take in. It's just. It went on, like Helen said, a little too long, and I think it was hyped up a little too much. Um, but like Corey says, it is what drives the end of the series and makes it so enjoyable and fulfilling. Yep. So I think we can all definitely recommend this as a show to pick up if you're interested in sports, but maybe you don't want something super long running like Haikyuu, but you don't want anything too ridiculous like Keijo. You know, you want something <laughs> rooted a little bit in reality. Um, since the show looks great, like to a point, I can believe the characters are pulling off these moves, like um, the jumps and stuff. It's it just gets to a moment where like, oh yeah, I can believe they pulled off that jump across a yawning chasm filled with stalagmites and stalactites. Okay, maybe not that, but you know, they they really make you buy into it at first. Um, and I mean, I just love how extra the show got points. Like that last race, it was just like I, I was just laughing my butt off the entire time I was watching that episode. Oh, going into the zone. <laughs> Not even that hard. It's like they show up for the race and Adam has a new outfit and it's like, really, man? You got dumped and this is how you're reacting to everything? <laughs> Not only that, he goes to a tailor in the middle of the race, right? <laughs> and like, he's... this isn't a wedding suit, this is a dramatic thunder. And I can only assume he said funeral or something <laughs> and he's like it's been skating he's been skating through the ring too so he's stopping when he walks into this place and that's one of the things i loved about the show is you don't need to know anything about skating and it doesn't try to teach you anything about skating like it pulls out a term or two here or there yeah and that's it like most of it's just drama and character fun yeah and as we've talked before Inc., on uh on the wave podcast like we don't know the rules of engagement here, but we don't really need to know the rules for something where it's just go downhill and get there first. Yeah, exactly. I think that's all there is. Like, go downhill, get there first. Nothing is out, potentially including murder. 
if you murder someone, half of the cast is in the hospital by some point or another in the show. <laughs> I can believe it. If you murder someone, you get to be like a government official, evidently, which is pretty true to real life. I don't know. That that was not one of the questions I had to answer for my government job. You know, <laughs> they're actually kind of concerned about those things because then, you know, you might have a debt and then you can be bought off, you know. You mean they always don't worry about uh, your particular job title, but they would for like an FBI agent. Yeah, they probably make you go on, undergo lie detector tests for those jobs. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, I, I did kind of wish that there's a little bit of a subplot involving um, some of Adam's... Uh, business associates um, the on the political side. I do kind of wish they had gotten more of a comeuppance in the end. I felt like the cool lady detective character, who's like the one female character in the show, she definitely got kind of put on a bus at the end, and I thought that was disappointing. Kiriko, right? I don't even remember her name, sadly. She uh, was red, cool, but she did not have a lot of suit. screen time. Yeah, I always liked when she showed up, just because she was this brash, hot-headed, like, not even brash, but just forced well she was a force to be reckoned with i was like man i wish she could have actually act- enacted stuff <laughs> you know especially since we see that um adam's gonna be sacrificing you know some of his older colleagues to save his own skin anyway it's like you know you, you just could have let her take care of it you know that would have been great i think that's my biggest complaint about the show which is you know kind of a typical complaint about sports shows it's like oh look it's another boy's sports show with negative one female characters basically <laughs> And I think it's a testament to how much I enjoyed the show and how much how engaging it was that I didn't mind that as much as I normally do. Because, yeah, we have her, we have Longa's mom, and that's about it. <laughs> Longa's mom is trying to figure out if her son is gay now. Yeah, I think Recky has a few... Uh, oh, yeah, he's, he's got, like, well, yeah. a mom, a sister, and a grandmother, but... Yeah. Yeah, but, like, Mom appears for, like, all of two seconds, it seems like, and her sister, thankfully, doesn't have, like, a brother complex, and, yeah. you know, oh, it's just sort of little sister there for being little sister for yeah. a reason. <laughs> Although yeah. we do see at the very end that it looks like she might have some really good skateboarding skills, so I kind of hope that she and Recky have, like, a future friendly rivalry, you know? That would, that would just be funny. Mm. I'm all for younger sisters one-upping their big brothers, you know? <laughs> of course. Um... So, do we have anything else, or should we move on to the couple of comments that we have? In some ways, this is not a very deep show. Okay, in many ways, it's not a very deep show, so there's not a lot of analysis to be given here. I will, I will say, I, I know um, the Animator Dormitory uh, project had people uh, working on this, and oh, yeah. uh, they, yeah, do I, have a, they do have a video out uh, about how one of the animators actually learned to skateboard so they could uh, get a handle on how to draw some of the sequences a little more realistically. So if you can, pull up, pull that up and give it a watch, because they get money every time you watch it, supposedly. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty fun story. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I saw that. It's on their um, YouTube channel, I think, um, which I, I thought was very funny. <laughs> you, you know, I'm like, oh, we, you know, we make jokes all the time that, you know, if you watch an anime on a sport, you get kind of interested in doing the sport. So it was funny to see it from that angle. Mm-hmm. And I, did anyone here actually feel the need to break out of board and give this a shot after, you know, going through longest trials and tribulations? I thought about no, it. No, but I am very glad to see that nature is healing around here. And now that people are getting vaccinated and safer, et cetera, that um, some people have resumed skateboarding in the streets around here, you know, pulling off their moves, stealing those line scooters and piling up to make you know, stuff to jump over. Uh, you know, I, I was glad to see nature was healing at the same time the show was going on. Yeah. We have a skateboarding park pretty close to us. 
where they all skateboard around without masks for some reason. I don't know. They're children and uh, not horrible, you, but whatever. Um, but yeah, I've thought about it. I used to, uh, or I tried skateboarding when I was preteen or teen. Uh, I was very bad at it, but so I rollerbladed instead. But it's been something that uh, I thought would be interesting to try to learn at least balance and going down a hill. Yeah, I have a good sense of balance, and I, I also was horrible at skateboarding when I tried it when I was little, um, basically for the balance. So I was like, yeah, I should try that. Oh, no, wait. I was, I was no, that's pretty much not my wheelhouse right there. <laughs> I'll, I'll not injure my 42-year-old self, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I've only done rollerblading one or two times, but I did do ice skating as a kid, so I was hoping to do more of it, you know, this past year, but, you know do not be near people and in closed spaces, so mm. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> My balance so, was okay when ice skating, though. You know, very important there. True. Alright, so, two comments from Izanga. She says, I hate Adam, and uh, very follow, valid. follows up with the tweet that I found from you, Helen, that did say that Alan, uh, Adam can just get late. Uh, someone should introduce him to Grinder and just tell him he's a skateboarder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he I already mean, uses the whole sport as a as a dating app. Basically, yeah. <laughs> he's testing out potential Eves. You know, he's seeing who has the potential to, I don't know, not die when skiing against him. Rollerblade, <laughs> <laughs> <Or> skateboarding. <laughs> also, yeah, you're totally um, wrong. Adam is a very decisive character. Um, like we said earlier, he's the most obviously queer coded and also most definitely the villain. So, going in like some Disney crap right over there, <laughs> but um. If you cannot hate him, you'll probably enjoy the show. If you do hate him, maybe you can still enjoy the show, since I think Dana did like it, but um, yep. it's going to be a little harder to put up with his antics. Alright, so let's close out this episode. Where can we find both of you on the internet? Well, well, you can find me on one of Corey's other podcasts, Manga in Your Ears, where we continue to talk about manga and Once in a Blue Moon, a light novel. Seriously, everyone reads Exiled. Um, and you can also find me writing reviews and podcasting over at the OASG, where I probably owe a couple of reviews right now. <laughs> you can catch me on the uh, the Tweety Box at Animated Inc. Uh, over at Anagamers for Old Talk and No Radio, and uh, in some back issues of Old yeah, Otaku USA Magazine and uh, FandomPost.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Passionate K. You can find this podcast on Twitter, Taiku Podcast, that's T-A-I-I-K-U, and you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com, and all the episodes that I do with Helen over at uh, Your Ears on Twitter. Uh, thank you both for coming on, talking about, what can we talk about, State the Infinity, oh my gosh, it's been three seconds, what's wrong with me? Uh, thank you for having us all. That ending song is very fun. <laughs> もう一人の自分みたいに思ってるよ一生共に行こう君と行こう涙の海の向こう進めるよ動けるよ力になれるよ共に行こう君と行こう思いがあるなら Let's keep feeling Let's keep in your heart 僕らのままで Happiness with you Let's get the feelings Let's get the feelings Corey, when's the Basquash episode happening? <laughs>
Um, reportedly at the end of May. Mm-hmm. Good, because I wasn't watching enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hear everybody's takes on that show because it is wild in a good way. <laughs> I've I've heard it depends on when you stop watching. <laughs> Because I've actually not seen the whole thing through yet, so. 